Okay, a couple of things to uh, remind you about. The Chafer Conference begins next Monday. Uh, after church this coming Sunday, we're going to need some uh, folks to help out uh, for a little while to move some chairs around and get tables set up and things of that nature. We still need some uh, uh, snack donations. Do we need cookie donations, Cheryl? Yeah. We still need cookies, cookies and snacks. Okay. And then um, uh, the deadline to set up is today. So now's the, now's the opportunity. Just a reminder that next week, because we have the, the conference on Monday the 11th through Wednesday night the, the uh, 13th, there will be no Bible class next Thursday night on March the 14th. But on Saturday morning, March the 16th, we'll have our monthly men's prayer breakfast and deacons meeting, and also have the annual church picnic on your calendar for April the 13th. One answer to prayer, we've been praying for this situation in New York with a man named Jack, who's a baker, and was uh, (coughs) acquitted by the Supreme Court because uh, the state of Colorado uh, Civil Rights Commission went after him because he would not create custom uh, cakes with messages that he found uh, objectionable, contrary to his uh, religious beliefs. And the Supreme Court found in his favor by a vote of 77 to 2 and stated that his that the Civil Rights Commission of Colorado had a, quote, clear and impermissible hostility toward Jack's sincere religious beliefs. But even after the Supreme Court did not acquit him, they went after him again uh, for some other things, and as of today, an email went out that they have dropped those charges or in any attempt to continue to persecute him uh, legally. So that is a real answer to prayer, something that we have been praying for. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we open God's word this evening, we need to make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord. We always begin with a few moments of silent prayer. It gives each of us the opportunity to go to the Lord in privacy and silent prayer to confess sin. And we have the promise from 1 John 1, 9 that instantly we are forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. It's wonderful that no matter how much we fail, that God always forgives us and restores us to fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in right relationship with him. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for your grace, for your goodness. It gives us great joy, comfort, uh, joy in the sense of contentment and stability because we know that no matter how we fail, how much we fail, you always forgive us. We get great illustration of that tonight in our study and that you are a God of forgiveness, a God of restoration. 
Father, we pray that you would continue to uh, comfort us, strengthen us with your word, teach us that we may expand our understanding of your plan and purposes in history, that we may come to understand your character in a more biblical way, and that this will transform uh, our own understanding of who we are and your mission for us in this life. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand that which we study this evening and that it will transform our, our souls and our character. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Open your Bibles to begin with this evening to Hosea chapter 3. Hosea chapter 3. We'll get there eventually. We are studying about the Davidic Covenant. This is the Tuesday night Bible class. We are continuing our study of 2 Samuel, and we have been in 2 Samuel chapter, chapter 7, studying the Davidic Covenant for the last several weeks. And the Davidic Covenant is a critical piece in the biblical pattern mosaic of the Old Testament teaching about God's plan, provision, promises, and prophecies related to the provision of the Messiah. And that's important to, for us to understand the sending of Jesus wasn't some afterthought. It was part of God's plan from eternity past, as we've studied on Sunday mornings recently in our study on Ephesians chapter 1, that God had a plan and a purpose, and he's working out that plan and purpose in human history that the Messianic prophecies... Now, this is important because we're going to go back into this very much next week at the Chafer Conference. And just one other thought about that. There have been some people who say, well, this is a pastor's conference. Well, it's targeted to pastors, but if you're a person who loves the Word of God, you're going to gain great benefit from it. It is, uh, it's like the pre-trib conference. It's targeted for pastors, but... Um, so many other people come, three times as many people come to the pre-trib conference as, as pastors or those who are in uh, some sort of professional ministry simply because they desire to know the Word and grow and mature in the uh, knowledge of our Lord and Savior. The same thing is true about the Chafer Conference. We have many more who come than are just in ministry, but I still get reports from people who say, well, you know, it's a pastor's conference. Well, it's for everybody, but we target pastors. And you can understand about, if you can understand what I'm teaching, you can understand anything that is going to be taught at, at this particular uh, conference. And even though part of it, one segment of it, is targeted towards helping pastors to move from the study of God's Word to the teaching of God's Word, uh, you're going to learn a lot. This is not going to exclude anybody who's not a teacher, but it is going to, because when you hear somebody teach teachers how to teach what they ought to be teaching about the Word of God, you're going to learn a lot about the Word of God, okay? So you're not going to be left out. So don't think that it's just because you're not a teacher, you don't want to be a teacher, you're never going to teach, that you shouldn't be here. If you think that, you're wrong, and that means you should be here, Okay? So just having said that, um, we are moving through uh, Samuel here trying to understand what is being said here about Messianic prophecies, which is another big part of the conference. That's what Stephen Gurr is going to be talking about, is moving through these, these prophecies. And one of the things that has uh, impressed me uh, over the last uh, 10 years or so is that 
not, often when you hear prophecy, people just talk about the individual prophecies, and I started that way last week. I'm changing up the order. I'm going to do things uh, tonight. There's a, pro- a chronological progression in the Scriptures. You start off with the first Messianic prophecy, which is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The next time you start getting some more pictures of the, um, of the, of the Messiah, uh, most specifically, I would say, would be in Genesis chapter 22, when God provides a ram substitute for the sacrifice of, of Isaac. You get other pictures of the Messiah in different things, in sacrifices. You get pictures of the Messiah in the life of Joseph, and you definitely get some more uh, <clears throat> specific prophecies when uh, Jacob is giving a prophecy over especially Judah that the scepter will not depart from the tribe of Judah. And these themes are later picked up in subsequent prophecies. This kind of a study that goes chronologically through the Scripture is called a diachronic study. So you'll hear that word, and that's what that means. It's it's not you're doing synchronic, which is what's going on all at the same time, but diachronic is through time. So that helps because you see that progress where God teaches here a little, there a little, and he adds to it as as you go along. <clears throat> and what we see is that the Old Testament teaching about the Messianic promise was pro- proclaimed by all of the prophets. It is sung in the praises of the Psalms. It's built into the architecture and the furniture of the temple. It's illustrated in the typology of the sacrifices and the various offerings of the Old Testament. It was the basis for bringing life and wisdom to the nation. It warned the people against idolatry and arrogance because there would be future judgment and discipline if they disobeyed God. It was a reminder of God's past grace and deliverance that pointed to a confident uh, hope and an expectation of a certain future for the nation. It taught about cleansing and forgiveness of sin and that God would wipe the slate clean and separate our sins as far as from him as the east is from the west. And it provided a protection from despair, comfort in defeat, joy throughout life, no matter what the circumstances. And it reminded the Jews that they had a mission to call the nations to serve and to worship Yahweh. All of that is part of the study of these messianic uh, prophecies that we're looking at as we go through the Davidic covenant. We looked at the question of what the Bible teaches about covenants, and the key idea is a covenant is a legally binding agreement or promise between two or more parties, especially for the performance of some action. Theologically, God is talked about that God condescends. That's not the best word, but it's the word that's used. He lowers himself to our level. He, as the omnipotent, infinite, eternal creator of all things, uh, lowers himself to our level and enters into legal contracts with us so that we can have confidence and certainty that God is going to do exactly what he says he's going to do and that he will be faithful to those promises. We looked at the fact that the, it is these Jewish covenants that God made, the promises he gave to the uh, patriarchs 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, specifically in terms of the Abrahamic covenant and later covenants that God gave. They are made in the Old Testament, but they all point to a future certain fulfillment. And so we lay out the dispensations, the timeline, the ages that are described in the Scripture. We see that the Abrahamic covenant is given at the beginning of the um, age of Israel, and it is during the time of the patriarchs. It had three elements, land covenant, promise of land, promise of of, uh, a seed, and promise of uh, worldwide blessing. Each of those elements are then divided into uh, and and expanded in subsequent covenants. There's the land covenant, there's the Davidic covenant, which we're studying, and then there is the new covenant. All of these come to fulfillment. They are for Israel, they are with Israel, they are for Israel, and they are fulfilled when Jesus as the Messianic king returns, assuming the title of king of Israel, and sits on David's throne at the beginning of the future uh, kingdom. So it is important and critical for us to talk about what the Bible teaches about the the uh, Davidic covenant. And it, last time we showed it's connected to the Abrahamic covenant because each of these elements is mentioned again in some form alluded to in the Davidic covenant. Just as God promised Abraham a specific piece of real, uh, real estate in the land, the promise in the Davidic covenant is that the seed of David will rule over a nation in that land. The seed then is further refined. It's not just coming from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Judah, but specifically the family of David, who is the son of Jesse. And then that's spelled out in the Davidic covenant, and then the new covenant expands on the promise of blessing. Specifically in the Davidic covenant, the passage we're studying is in 2 Samuel seven twelve to 16. Psalm 89 was written after the Babylonian exile when the people returned uh, to Israel as a sort of a recommitment, a realization that as unfaithful as they had been, God forgave them and would be true to his promise. Now, that is so important. We're going to see that theme again and again tonight, that, that what undergirds these covenants is the grace of God. Because God gives them freely of his character, and he is not putting conditions upon Israel in order to fulfill them. They are unconditional, and they are eternal, and they speak of his forgiveness that no matter how screwed up Israel was, and you may think that the United States is pretty screwed up right now, and that maybe Western Europe is pretty screwed up right now, but we're not nearly as malfunctional as most of Africa or India or China. And if you go back and you read Kings, First and Second Kings, and you read all about what was going on in terms of the, all of the uh, fertility worship and the infant sacrifice, the infanticide that was taking place in Israel, we haven't even begun to touch the levels of depravity that you find in Israel in the Old Testament, and yet God forgives them. God is going to restore them, and God is going to be faithful to those promises. And that says a lot to us because it teaches the principle that no matter how much we we mess up, how much we foul up, how much we sin, 
that if we're still alive, God has a plan for our life. God is going to forgive us. He will restore us, and he will do it with joy. The great picture is the picture that we have of the prodigal son, that when no matter how much the prodigal son failed, uh, when he returned to the father, the father welcomed him. That doesn't mean there weren't consequences. Uh, he suffered a lot of consequences living with the pigs and the pigsty, but he's welcomed with open arms. Uh, the, the father does not say, I told you so. The father throws a big party for him, and there's a huge celebration, and that's a great picture of God's grace toward us. In the Davidic covenant, God promises an eternal house. That means a dynasty, that the, there's a Davidic dynasty that will be eternal. He promises a kingdom that will be eternal and a throne that will be eternal. And I've talked about this in Psalm 89. My covenant I will not break nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever. And I've pointed out that eternality is a characteristic of deity. And the singular seed there looks to the Messiah, one individual, who will endure forever. So there's that strong hint of eternality of the Messiah. And his throne as the sun before me, as, and it shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. So from there, what I did was I took us through several other passages related to the eternality of the covenant, and then I talked about how the covenant is interpreted that when you look at how it's interpreted following the time that it is given to David, roughly 1000 B.C., it shows up throughout the, the, the latter prophets. The, the Old Testament is divided into the former prophets, that's jo- the books, those who wrote Joshua, Judges, um, Samuel, Kings, and then the latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. So when we look at, at, at that, we see that those latter prophets refer back and expand on, to some degree, the Davidic covenant showing its faithfulness, and that's what we're looking at. And last time I went to uh, David's last words in Second Samuel chapter 23 and <clears throat> stated, we looked at this where David says, although my house is not so with God, my house meaning my dynasty, that's a reference back to the uh, Davidic covenant. Yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure, for this is all my salvation and my desire. Will he not make it increase? And that word there for make it increase is the second word down here in the bottom. It's the noun form, or excuse me, it's the top word, it's the verb, uh, tzamak, uh, which means to grow or to sprout or to branch. So he's basically saying, will he, will God not make it increase? Will God not make it fruitful? Will God not make it branch out? And then the noun form, tzamach, means the branch, and that becomes a title for Messiah. And we saw that this is used of the branch of the Lord in Isaiah 4.2, which I spoke of briefly last time. Uh, it's referred to as the branch of David in Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6. Uh, in Zechariah 3, 8, we have reference to my servant, the branch. 
And then in Zechariah 6.12, the man whose name is Branch. So we will get to all of those. I started off looking at Isaiah 4.2 last time and concluded with talking about the fact that this, <clears throat> the context of Isaiah 4.2 is a context where at the end of chapter 3, it speaks of the rebelliousness, the sinfulness of, of Israel. And that here in Isaiah 4.2, there's the promise that in that day, in that future time, in the time when the kingdom is established, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And the context indicates that this is a time of forgiveness for Israel, and only God can forgive. So there's a hint here, not only is the branch speaking of the human origin of the Messiah, but also he must be God because only God can forgive. So that all comes out of the context where we concluded last time. So that sets us up, and as I was studying and thinking in preparation for tonight and um, discovering and finding more and more materials to work through in this particular topic, uh, I realized that what I need to do is to, instead of looking at just the branch promises, I want to look at uh, these, pick out certain key Davidic, ba- Davidic covenant-based prophecies as they're played out through time, looking at this diachronically. So for those of you who are chronologically challenged, I made a chart. Okay, so we start on the left with the 9th and 8th centuries B.C. This is the 800s to the 700s. Now, there's only two possible books that some scholars, many conservatives, will place early, and that's Joel and Obadiah. The question mark there is that there are even some conservatives who will put them somewhat later uh, in the 6th century, but for now we're going to go with an early date. Uh, but neither of them contain Davidic-based, Davidic covenant-based uh, prophecies. The key prophecies uh, are the key uh, 8th century prophets, this is in the 700s, are Hosea, Micah, Amos, Jonah, and Isaiah. And they overlapped, and they some of them knew each other. Micah is definitely familiar with what Isaiah writes, There are various similarities between things that are said by Micah and things that are said by Isaiah. Jonah is sort of distinct and off on his own. There's uh, some indication that, um, that at least a tradition that Jonah, after the uh, repentance of Nineveh, stayed in Nineveh. I don't know how accurate that is. There was a tomb of Jonah that has been... um, uh, venerated for for I don't know how many centuries. It may just have been something that was developed later, like many of these many of these tombs are. There's a tomb of David in in Jerusalem that is not the tomb of David, but it goes back to a um, a, a pre-first century uh, time, a time in the interim period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So I don't know if that that's really the tomb of Jonah, but at least there's a tradition that he stayed in Nineveh. I'm not sure. Uh, the Bible doesn't tell us what actually happened to Jonah. But Hosea, Micah, Amos, and Isaiah, those four prophets all expand a little bit on the Davidic covenant. 
and tell us a little bit more about how this will be fulfilled. So we see that there is a a continued trajectory through the Old Testament, a continued belief in the literal, historical covenant that God made with David. Then we get into the 7th century. This is the period of the 700s. Now remember, in terms of the 800s to the 700s, it's in 722 that the Assyrian Empire defeats and destroys the northern kingdom of Israel, and and that is wiped out, and the Jews living in the north are deported and are resettled throughout the Assyrian uh, Empire. In the 7th century, the century of the 600s, there's the warning that this is going to happen to Israel as well. The prophets of this time are Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Nahum and Jeremiah. Jeremiah is right at the end. He sort of overlaps because he dies during the exile. So part of his ministry is before 605, which is the first invasion of Nebuchadnezzar. But he dies after um, after the destruction of Jerusalem. That's why he writes the book of Lamentations. That is his expression of grief over the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. But he says, this I recall to mind and therefore have hope. Uh, The Lord's mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. So as he reflects on the word, he has hope and focuses on the future. So we see Jeremiah also expanding on the branch uh, illustration of the Davidic covenant. Then you get into the 6th century itself, 586 B.C. is when the southern kingdom is destroyed. And so you have the two exilic prophets. These are the prophets during the exile. Ezekiel is in the exile. He is in Babylon, as is Daniel. They are in the exile. And so we'll look at a couple of passages in Ezekiel. And then after the Jews return to the land in 538 That is when you have the rebuilding of the temple. There's some problems with that. And so both Haggai and Zechariah are directed towards challenging and motivating the Jews to finish, to complete the rebuilding of the temple. And then a 100 years later, there are more spiritual problems, and that is the purpose and the mission of Malachi. Uh, All of these have messianic prophecies, but we're just focusing on the ones that are grounded in the Davidic covenant and expand that. So we're going to start in Hosea, and so turn with me to Hosea chapter 3, and we will look at verses 4 and 5. Hosea chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. Now you can tell when you look at your Bible that Hosea chapter 3 is a really long chapter. It's about looks to me like it's about um, seven verses. Verse 4 we read, For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, The children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Now, this calls for a certain amount of explanation as to what's going on and some background. Every now and then I hear from somebody in the congregation who's reading through their Bible and they get to Hosea and they go, what in the world is going on here? 
which is the same question they ask when they're reading Isaiah and when they're reading uh, Jeremiah and, and Ezekiel. So we have to get a little uh, background here because it seems so bizarre at the very beginning of uh, Hosea. In Hosea chapter 1, verse 2, we see the Lord's commission to Hosea. When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of a harlotry. Go take yourself, take for a wife a prostitute and children of prostitution, for the land has committed great prostitution by departing from the Lord. So the imagery here is that God compares the unfaithfulness of sexual immorality to the unfaithfulness to his covenant. That's the point of comparison here. And uh, the other issue is it sounds, when you read this in the English, that what God is telling Hosea to do is to go marry a prostitute. And there's debate about this. Is she already in temple prostitution for the uh, for idolatry or not? And I can't, don't have time to go through all the arguments, but no. I believe that at the beginning, in order to fit the analogy with Israel, she is faithful to Hosea. And there are a lot of arguments for that. Uh, but she is faithful. She has not yet given herself over to idolatry. And she is uh, she marries him. There are no children yet. The children are all born before uh, she goes into her uh, unfaithfulness and, and breaks the, the marriage uh, covenant. So what we see here in the message of Hosea is this focus on God's grace and forgiveness. That's what it's all about. No matter how much this wife has failed uh, Hosea, no matter how much she has broken this covenant, no matter how immoral and uh, uh, lewd that she has become, no matter how many men that she has been with in, in the horrors of the temple prostitution and all the fertility rituals and all that that was involved in, Hosea is going to be directed to go and take her back and to restore her. And that is, uh, she is a picture of our sinfulness. She's primarily a picture of Israel's sinfulness, Israel's unfaithfulness to the Mosaic Covenant, Israel's seeking after other gods and complete violation of all of the uh, mandates of the of the Mosaic Law to seek uh, God holy, that's W-H-O-L-L-Y, completely or totally, and to avoid all appearance of idolatry and unfaithfulness. And so uh, she not only gets involved in idolatry, but she gets involved in one of the most horrific forms of idolatry that existed in the ancient world. And there, the, the most extreme forms, this isn't mentioned here in Hosea, but the most extreme forms was that they would worship the gods of fertility by taking their children and by immolating them, by burning them alive in the arms of Molech or Chemosh, these, these fertility gods, and acts of dedication to this god that, that they would motivate him to make them even more prosperous and, and, um, and more fertile. That's the whole idea of fertility in an agricultural, in an agricultural society. So the, the theme of, of Hosea throughout is that no matter how bad, no matter how wicked, no matter how evil that, um, that Gomer became, 
God was going to forgive her. Hosea is the picture of God who is going to welcome her back, and there's going to be a period of, uh, of cleansing and purification, and then she will be completely restored and welcomed back by Hosea. And that is the same picture that we get of how God welcomes us back uh, to him. So it uh, begins by Hosea being told to marry Gomer. She is a probably a virgin. She is a young maiden. And then after having three children, she abandons Gomer and the children, and she goes off to become a, a ritual prostitute, a temple prostitute. And then uh, Gomer is, I mean, Hosea is told uh, to buy her back. And at this point, she has uh, has no value. So if you look at Hosea chapter 3, we read in verse 1, Then the Lord said to me, Go again, um, go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel, who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of My glasses are of the, what's that word? Part? Pagans. Okay, it's in italics in my Bible. I couldn't make it out. I've got to go to the eye doctor. Uh, So I brought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and a half homers of barley. Now, one and a half homers of barley is equal to 15 shekels. So you, even I can do the basic math that 15 shekels plus 15 shekels equal 30 shekels. 30 shekels is the price of a slave. 30 pieces of silver is what uh, Judas betrayed Jesus for. It's the price of a slave. It's the lowest amount. It, It just shows that this person has very little value, and she has value to none of her lovers anymore because of all of her temple prostitution. Yet she is bought by by Homer, I mean by uh, Hosea, and she is going to be loved and valued by Hosea. So this is all clearly stated in verse 1 that this is something that is to teach about God's love and his faithfulness to Israel because of his promise in, in the covenant. So we say, we look at verse 3 and we read, And I said to her, you shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the prostitute, nor shall you have a man. So too will I be toward you. This is a time of, of purification in preparation for the restoration. And so this depicts the fact that, that God's justice has to be satisfied that there has to be a purification for sin. He's not just forgiving her willy-nilly. There is a time of purification before the time of restoration. God in his justice does not overlook our sin, but there is a provision and a payment for our sin. That is what Christ died for on the cross. So God's justice doesn't overlook Israel's apostasy and idolatry, and there are there's still consequences, and that's what's stated in verse 4. For the children of Israel shifts from the illustration to the reality. In verse 4, the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. So what's going on here? What we read here is that the children of Israel are going to go through a time described as many days 
where they are without a ruler. They have no king or prince. They're without a ruler, which indicates there's no kingdom. They're out of the land. Uh, there will be no sacrifice or sacred pillar. Sacrifice, there's no temple. Uh, sacred pillar was a standing stone that often uh, was uh, erected in a as a place of sacrifice, which represented the God and represented the temple. So there's no worship, and there's no worship of uh, there's no idolatry at all, and so. This is a prophecy that depicts the general trend among Israelites from the time of the beginning of God's discipline on the nation in 722 in the north, and then in 586. This is when the diaspora began. It's a Greek word that, were, that is, comes into English as dispersion, and the Jews were dispersed from their land based on the promise of God in Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy uh, chapter 28, that God would, if they were unfaithful, God would remove them uh, from the land. Now, there's a re return to the land that is a partial return that occurs starting in 538. There were only about 45,000 that returned initially under Zerubbabel. There were subsequent returns under Ezra the priest and under Nehemiah. But even at the time of our Lord, there is only a smaller percentage of Jews in the world that are living in uh, the land that was given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We don't know how many. It might have been uh, as much as maybe a, a couple of million. And the reason I say that, I haven't read, I'm sure there are some numbers out there, I haven't read them, but there is such a slaughter that occurs in the first Jewish revolt, which began from 66 to 70, and there's another huge slaughter, almost 800,000, 900,000 killed in the Bar Kokhba revolt that occurs in 135. So that would indicate that there may be uh, close to 2 million or so who are living uh, living in the land. But the, the majority of Jews from that time to the present have not been religious. We think of many that we see, we're mostly familiar with the uh, Ashkenazi Jews and the Eastern European Orthodox Jews, but there were many other Jews that were scattered throughout the Middle East. Uh, the, they're referred to sometimes as the Mitzrahim, and they're the Sephardic Jews. And they lived in uh, areas that were dominated after, after 600 by Islam. Uh, they were scattered as far as India and into China and many other places. They kept up some of the... Uh, much like today, you have secular Jews who will go to uh, temple, they will go to uh, synagogue, they will observe some of the holidays, but as far as day-to-day -day life is concerned, they're agnostic. It always surprises a lot of, uh, whenever I take folks to Israel, how agnostic most Jews are and how ignorant they are of the scriptures. And even uh, more observant Jews that you know here are, are pretty ignorant of, of the scripture as well. So the general trend has been towards an ah-religious uh, nation. And so this characterizes, I think, the last part of verse 4 characterizes the time period of the diaspora. And then there's this big gap between them. And then in verse 5, we read afterward, after this time period, where there's a time of many days, when there's no ruler, there's no king, there's no prince, all of these things, there's no temple. 
Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Now, the latter days refers to the time of the millennial kingdom. This is yet future. This is following the the return and establishment of the Davidic kingdom, which is when Jesus, as the messianic king, returns to the earth. So this is predicted also in Deuteronomy 30. But the key word we see here is this word, shall return. The Hebrew word is shuv. And even today, we will, you will hear about uh, Jews who are coming back to Judaism, and they're doing teshuvah. They're repenting. They're turning back. And so that's the basic term. Sometimes it's translated as repent, but it means simply to turn back to God. And it goes back to what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 3. Now it shall come to pass when all these things, see in chapter 28, 29, you have the blessings and the curses. Now it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you. So where are they? They're scattered into all the nations. They're scattered throughout Europe, South America, Australia. They're in India. They're in Asia, all the Asian countries, Russia. They're all over the world. And at that time, this future time, they will recall uh, this to mind and remember what the Lord has said. And then the next thing that happens after recalling to mind what the Lord said, you return to the Lord. They turn back to him. That's that same word, shuv. You return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you. So first they recall to mind, then they act on it, and they turn back to God, and they obey his voice. And then, verse 3, that the Lord your God then will bring you back. See, there's that word shuv again. He will return you or restore you from captivity. So that's not what's going on today. Two or three years ago, I heard a rabbi speak at a church here in, in Houston. It was fascinating. He's an Orthodox rabbi, and he was going through Deuteronomy 29, ending with, with um, 30, skips. Um, he, he skipped verse, verses uh, 1 and 2 and went to verse 3. He was the he's a rabbi. He, you know, there's a jewelry company here in Houston called Zadok Jewelers. Well, he's the owner's brother. He's got a ministry in Israel. He's a rabbi there. And it was fascinating how he goes through this whole thing, and he skips the whole issue of turning back to God and saying, see, what we're seeing today is the fulfillment of verse 3. That, you know, that's called pick and choose your verses. You know, that's not going verse by verse. That's going by verse, skip, skip a few that you don't agree with, and then go to another one. So this is what, what is happening here. And so we learn several things about the Davidic covenant from this from this passage. First of all, we learn that the Davidic king, the fulfillment of the Davidic promise, does not take place until after Israel returns to the land in repentance, in, in turning back to God. So the Davidic king comes after Israel turns back to God. The second thing that we learn 
as we look at this, is that the Messiah is going to be a descendant of David. And in this passage, he's called David your king. Now, the question that we have to resolve, and I'm not, I haven't resolved this, is it talking about Jesus as a descendant of David? Is this just a reference to David the king because he's a descendant of David? Or is this talking about the fact that this is literal resurrected David who will rule? See, one of the passages that... Um, that references this is in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 34, 23 to 24, and Ezekiel 37, 24 to 25 will refer to David the prince when you get into the kingdom, David the prince. And I believe in those passages it's talking about literal David because in other passages it's talking about Messiah the king. He's the king over all the earth and he's ruling over all the earth and he is on David's throne, but David the prince is ruling as as his uh, uh, under-governor, as, as you might put it, ruling uh, over, uh, over Israel. So here it's just referring to him as David the king, indicating that he is the fulfillment of that Davidic promise. A third thing, we see that he is a great king. He rules over all those who uh, fear him. And fear, fear the Lord. We go back to the verse here. Um, they, that is all the people, shall fear fear the Lord. And so he is a ruler over over them. Ruler, uh, he's a great king. Uh, fourth thing we see is that this whole passage is addressed to, to Israel. It's the children of Israel, specifically the northern kingdom. And so this indicates that the northern kingdom will be reunited with the southern kingdom, and they will both be under the authority of David the king. Uh, after the, the, the split in approximately 930 between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the king in the north was not a descendant of David. So this indicates a reunification of Israel under one king in the house of David. And the last thing to observe is the phrase, they will seek Yahweh their God and David their king. And it seems like there is a very, very close connection here between these two, uh, in, between Yahweh and David the king. It doesn't spell it out. Elsewhere we see that that the Messiah, of course, is Yahweh, but that's not spelled out here. It's just hinted at in terms of in terms of the language. So that's Hosea. Now, as I pointed out earlier, Hosea is in the seventh century. One of his colleagues writing at the same time is Amos. So turn in your Bibles to Amos chapter nine. Now, Amos is not one of those prophets who's out there to win friends and uh, and make people happy. He's not a motivational speaker like some of the pastors we know around here. He's not there with a big happy smile making everybody feel good. He is there to lower the boom on Israel. In fact, if you read through Amos, what you see is a tremendous amount of announcements of judgment that it's going to come on on Israel. And it's not until you get to the last chapter, which begins with the destruction of Israel, and then when you get down to uh, verse 11, you, that's when you finally get the hope. That's when you get the rest, the promises related to 
uh, restoration. Now, part of the significance of Amos 9, 11, and 12 is that this is quoted in the New Testament. So we ha- have to follow the, uh, connect the dots here as we go through uh, these passages because it shows that in the New Testament, by qu- in the way it quotes Isaiah, uh, Amos 9, 11, and 12, shows that the New Testament treats the Davidic covenant just as literally as Amos does. And this shows that there is this expectation that in the end times that there will be a restoration of Israel and a restoration of the dynasty or the house of David. So we have to work our way through this a little bit, and this is not quite as simple as you might think. There's a lot that's going on here in these uh, in these two verses. So... Just a little context, uh, Amos' prophetic ministry is approximately 750 B.C. Now, how do we know that? Well, we know that because we know a guy named Dr. Steve Austin, and he is a believer, he is a geologist, he's spoken here a couple of times, and one of the things that's his specialty is in going over and analyzing the geological columns in, and for evidence of seismic activity in Israel. And he has done a lot. He can identify all these various earthquakes and seismic activity that's alluded to in, 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 the, in the Scripture. And so he even thinks he's found evidence of the famine that is mentioned in Jerusalem that occurs in the 40s. And I somewhat facetiously, facetiously responded to him in a text the other day, was, does that mean you just found an absence of seeds in the layer? So anyhow, uh, I don't know how you find evidence of a famine but anyway, he has identified the earthquake that occurred at the time of the crucifixion. He's identified several others, just remarkable, but he's written a very technical monograph on the this earthquake at the time of Amos, and he has dated it to approximately 750 due to a number of other correlating factors and observations by other nations about uh, about this earthquake. So from that we can identify this because at the beginning of the book of Amos, it says that he writes um, a couple of years before this earthquake. So that would mean uh, somewhere around uh, 748, 750, so we can date it fairly, fairly accurately. But before we get into more of that information, we need to get a little background because there's this mention in verse 2 of possessing the remnant of Edom. What in the world is going on there? This goes back to what I talked about earlier, that what you see is earlier messianic prophecies— Genesis 3.15, Genesis 22, Genesis 49, and then uh, we get later on into Numbers chapter uh, 24, uh, 22 to 24 in the uh, three Balaam oracles. We see that these oracles pick up on language that comes from earlier prophecies. So it, it's stringing these things together. So they're connected. They shouldn't be just understood 
in isolation from from each other. And so the background for understanding part of this uh, these two verses is found in Numbers chapter 24. So let's turn back to uh, Numbers, the fourth book of the Torah, the fourth book of the five in the Pentateuch, Numbers chapter 24, which is one of these bizarre instances where uh, the king of Moab hires out a prophet to curse Israel, and God prohibits him from uh, from cursing Israel. And uh, so there are three instances where Balaam wants to bless, I mean, wants to curse Israel, and different things happen, and we won't go into all, all of those things. I've done that before in earlier series on the Messiah at Christmas. But this is in his, we're going to get into his third prophecy here, that begins in Numbers chapter 24 and begins in, um, actually begins most in verse 5, but we'll get focused in our study in verse 7. In verse 7. And so this is talking about um, this future king. He shall pour water from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. Now, that word seed is singular. And that we will get back to talking about the seed in a minute because that's the way, I mean, in a few studies, that's how Paul refers to it in Genesis 3.15, goes back to Genesis, uh, where the seed, sing, as it relates singular, is a reference to the Messiah. I'll give you a little foreshadowing. When you get to that verse, a lot of times seed refers to it, it's one of those one of those words that can involve a, a a group like the word crowd. A crowd can be is a singular noun, but it has many people. So you can have a singular noun that refers to, like seed that refers to many descendants, like the word deer can refer to many deer, or the word seed can just refer to one. And the way you know it in a couple of passages in the patriarchs is that it's referred to subsequently by singular pronouns. So that tells you that it's talking about one seed, not descendants, because there are other times when it's re- when the word seed is referred to by plural pronouns. So the seed here and... Uh, it's talking about its expansion over many waters, but the key phrase is his king, that's talking about God's king, will be higher than Agag. That's how it is translated in your Bibles. Now, remember in in the Hebrew text, there's no vowels. So all you have in the Hebrew original, going back to Moses, are two Gs. Later the scribes developed a system of annotating the the words with various symbols for vowels in order to preserve pronunciation. And so we have these vowel points today. You had a group of scribes in the uh, early, early Middle Ages uh, from, this, from one family that were called the Masoretes. And so the text that we have today is called the Masoretic text. The vowel points that are in the Masoretic text are the vowel points that were put there 
by the Masoretes. They exercised a certain amount of interpretive latitude in inserting these vowel points. Now, you can take a word and you can change the vowels. You can take a couple of of, uh, consonants. Let's say you take S, T, and P. And you can insert an O, and it's the word stop. Or you can insert the word, uh, the, the vowel E, and you have the word step. Just by changing the vowel, you change the meaning of the word. And what uh, is demonstrated uh, very technically by Michael Rydelnik, and I'm sure that next week with Steve Gurr, we're going to get a reference to this same material, that the Masoretes inserted these vowels, an A-class vowel, making it agag, which would speak of the of a historic fulfillment. Agag was the king of the Amalekites whom uh, Saul was supposed to kill, and Saul didn't kill him. Saul disobeyed him, and because of that, God took the uh, throne away from Saul, took his dynasty away from him, and transferred it uh, to David. And so when it says his king shall be higher than uh, Agag, by putting it that way, it lost the messianic significance of this prophecy. If you put in it instead the O-class vowel, and it is he, his king shall be higher than Gog, then Gog is mentioned in Ezekiel as the enemy of the Messiah at the end times and as the enemy of God in the Gog and Magog rebellion, which occurs with Satan's release from, uh, uh, from chains in the abyss at the end of the tribulation period. So what we have here is this, uh, if it's if it's actually punctuated as Gog, then what you have here is a prophecy, his king shall be higher than Gog, and his kingdom shall be exalted. And then there's another statement in verse 8, God, God brings him, that is the, the Messiah, this king, out of Egypt. Where, does you, where do you have that? You, you have that also in... Um, in the New Testament as a quote uh, from the Old Testament that God uh, brings the Messiah out of Egypt. So this ultimately has its its um, uh, allusion back to Numbers 24, 8. God brings him, the Messiah, out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox. He shall consume the nations, his enemies. He shall break their bones and pierce them with arrows, arrows, he bows down, he lies down as a lion. Where does that lion imagery derive? Genesis 49, uh, the, the lion of Judah. Uh, as a lion, who shall rouse him? And then you have the phrase, blessed is he who blesses you and curses is he who curses you. And this takes us back to the Abrahamic covenant. So you see that to understand this prophecy, you really have to understand these allusions to other previous prophecies and the connections that it, it fits into future uh, messianic prophecies. And then in verse 17 of this chapter, we just skip down to verse 17, um, in, which is in the fourth prophecy of, of Balaam. He makes this statement. He says, I see him talking about this future king, but not now. In other words, he's far off in the future. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, 
a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So this is another reference to the Messiah, reference to him as a star. This is often thought to be the background, the prophetic background for the star indicating the birth of the Messiah and the scepter indicating that this is the one who will come and who will who will rule. And he will batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumult. Now, Moab uh, overlaps with Edom. So that's why I went back here is because we see that uh, what, it, what is stated is that this isn't fulfilled historically in David. It is in the future when um, there, the Israel will subjugate Moab and Edom, and this is in, in the end time. So um, this Balaam prophecy, it forms the background, and it's validated to some degree in the uh, Targums, in the Targumim. These are the commentary, Jewish commentaries that predate uh, Jesus. And in Midrash Rabbah, in uh, Devarim 120, it says that the star and the scepter refer to Messiah. So the point there is that these ancient Jewish commentaries viewed these as messianic prophecies, but when you get into the era of Christianity, then you have these developments among the rabbi to take the messianic aspect out of these prophecies and to try to interpret them as having historic fulfillment uh, before Jesus and uh, and that destroys the messianic aspect. But this is also the view that was held in the early church by early church fathers such as uh, Justin Martyr and and Athanasius. So when we get to uh, Amos, uh, his ministry begins around 750, 752, something like that. He's 250 years after David, which means he's 650 years after Moses. This is approximately 30 years, 752 is 30 years before the destruction of the northern kingdom. Uh, Uzziah of Judah is reigning uh, at that time in the south, and Jeroboam II, who's also the ruler at the time of Jonah, is on the throne in uh, the northern kingdom. He reigned from 786 to 746. Uh, Amos was probably, you know, you'll often hear the social justice types who go back and, and interpret the Old Testament, and they, they look at various things about Amos. That he's a farmer. Uh, he is described as uh, someone who is a breeder of sheep, and so they think that he's a rather lower-level um, uh, agricultural worker. Other passages describe him as a shepherd, a fig picker, a cattleman. But the word that is used when it describes him as a breeder of sheep is the same word that is used elsewhere to describe Misha, the king of Moab. Now, Misha, the king of Moab, is not some low-level, poverty-stricken agricultural uh, worker, migrant agricultural worker, but that's how liberals will treat these passages. You know, they want to they want to find something so that they can uh, uh, elevate the uh, the lower level migrant worker. Well, Amos is uh, described by the same word that describes the king of Moab. So this would indicate that he is a very wealthy 
farmer, that he is somebody who is very skilled and that he is not just some uh, migrant worker. So he comes along and has a very negative message uh, towards Israel. But at the end, there's hope. In that day, he says, I will raise up the tabernacle or the fallen booth of David. The word here is Sukkot. There is the, this is the word for booths, a, a temporary dwelling place. I'll raise up the tabernacle of David. Notice when, when the Davidic dynasty is in decline, it's spoken of as a fallen down, uh, basically a falling, fallen down, uh, shelter, falling down, wiki up of, of branches. And yet, when it's spoken of, when David is in the descendancy, it's spoken of as a house and as a dynasty. So this is now when the Davidic dynasty is under divine discipline and divine judgment. And the promise is, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. So it, it predicts a future time when the house of David will be in a state of collapse And then there's the promise, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Now, in English, that little pronoun, its, is neuter. You have no idea to what that refers. However, in the Hebrew, it's very clear. The first its, repair its damages, is a feminine plural. So that's not referring to the to the tabernacle of David. You have to look at each one of these to understand that to which the pronoun uh, refers. So there are broken places. Uh, this is described as as broken walls. It has a third person uh, feminine plural suffix. So this feminine plural. Uh, and repair its damages refers to the broken uh, broken places. Um, and this then, uh, the feminine plural, uh, refers to the two kingdoms that had been divided since the days of Rehoboam. They've been broken down, and God is going to restore these back to one kingdom. And then it states, I will raise up its... Ruins. This has a masculine singular suffix, and this refers to David, not to the Sukkot or the booths, or as it's translated in New King James, the tabernacle, because the Hebrew word for booth is feminine. David is masculine. So refer, um, raising up his ruin, that is talking about the house of David, and rebuild it as in the days of old. And this third one has a feminine singular suffix, and this refers uh, to the rebuilding of the fallen Sukkot, the dynasty of David. So in these three statements, there is a clear indication, the reunification of the nation, the restoration of David, and the rebuilding of the house of David. And um, this alludes to the fact that in um, 
Hosea 3, 5, you have after the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. That is an expression of this restoration that occurs after they turn back to God. Then when we look at Amos 9, 12, the result of this is then that they conquer. And the word for possess here is the same word that's used back there in Numbers chapter 24 in the Balaam oracle. So that is a connection that we find here. They will possess, they will conquer and subjugate the remnant of Edom. Now that's interesting because usually the word remnant describes the believers in Israel. So here it is describing Gentile believers that are going to be come under blessing. They are believers and they will be come under the umbrella of the messianic kingdom. And as not only the remnant of Edom, but even, it shouldn't be translated and, but even, uh, in addition, all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Now, this is going to be picked up in Acts chapter 15 when you have the council in Jerusalem and there's this big debate. What do we do about all these goy that want to be part of Christianity now? Up to that point, they were, uh, they, they thought this was going to be a Jewish thing. And then in Acts 10, you have the vision calling David, I mean, uh, Peter to take the gospel to Cornelius. He takes the gospel to Cornelius. Cornelius is, and his household are saved. And you have the, the, the official uh, conjoining of Jew and Gentile. And so now as the disciples, the apostles get together in Jerusalem to uh, work through uh, how this is now going to happen, uh, James stands up and he says, Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. See, they're going back here and saying, see, there's a precedent in the prophets that Gentiles are going to be included in the kingdom in the future. And so then he quotes from Acts 15, I mean, from, um, from Amos uh, chapter 9, 11, and 12. And the point that he is making is simply that God has not excluded the Gentiles from the kingdom. He's including them as a kingdom, as this indicates, so we need to include them in the church. He's not equating the church to the kingdom, but he is equating the fact that in the future kingdom there will be Gentiles uh, present. That's, that's the point of, of his analogy. So we see, again, this Davidic promise this covenant works its way through the prophets and comes back. Now, next time, we're going to get into some of the other prophecies in Isaiah. Now, that won't be next week because we will be in the Chafer Conference, so that will be uh, two weeks from today. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at these things, to be reminded of your word, to see how all the parts fit together, how everything um, complements one another, and how you're, you are so faithful to us, your, your great forgiveness, your great love for us, that, that no matter how much we fail, our salvation is not dependent upon us, it's dependent upon you, as you've demonstrated through your faithfulness to your covenants to Israel, so you are faithful to your promise in saving us, and your forgiveness is, is always there, you're always welcoming us back, no matter how egregious our sins, no matter how long we're away, you welcome us back, and you forgive us and cleanse us. And we're so thankful for your grace. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.